listening to Aspen Ideas To Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. Each week, you'll hear compelling talks from the Aspen Ideas Festival and other public events presented by the Aspen Institute. The Aspen Institute is an educational and policy studies organization that fosters values-based leadership and provides a nonpartisan venue for dealing with critical issues of the day. This episode features a conversation between Dana Boyd and Hannah Rosen. Boyd is a principal researcher at Microsoft Research and the author of It's Complicated, The Social Lives of Networked Teens. For the past decade, Boyd has focused her research on how young people use social media as part of everyday life. Boyd is a data whiz with a knack for getting teens to talk honestly. She regularly shatters myths about teens and technology. Rosen is a senior editor at The Atlantic. She is also the author of The End of Men and God's Harvard, a Christian college on a mission to save America. Rosen and Boyd sat down at the Aspen Ideas Festival to talk about the many myths that surround teens and technology. Here are Dana Boyd and Hannah Rosen. My name is Hannah Rosen. I am a writer for The Atlantic, and I am so happy to be in conversation with Dana Boyd, who I've read for many years and really, really admire. Uh, Dana is a researcher at Microsoft Research. She teaches at NYU, and what makes her distinct is her subject. Uh, she chases the elusive creature called the American teenager. And, um, and, uh, and, and not only that, if you're a parent uh, of a teenager, which I am, you would be jealous at how thoroughly the teenagers trust her and what they tell her. She has traveled the country and talked to hundreds of teenagers of all sexes, races, classes. It's amazing what a wide variety of people uh, she's talked to, and she just has a new book called It's Complicated, which I read, which is wonderful, uh, which I think ultimately amounts to a you're doing it wrong for all American adults, not just parents, but you know all the things you think you know about how teenagers do their social media, but you are wrong about those things. Uh, but I want to start with Dana herself and how she got into this research. Um, basically, you had a riff about uh, what the internet meant to you when you were young, which is quite different from what it means today. So I want to start there as a little historical counterpoint. Yeah, I mean, in many ways, I was part of the first generation of teenagers who grew up online. Uh, my mom got uh, a computer, in part for my brother. The idea was that it would help him with eye-hand coordination. I'm not sure that that was ever actually true, but this was at a period of time where any idea of technology was seemed uh, to be educational, so it was a good thing. And my brother figured out how to hook the computer up to the internet, um, which all I knew as a teenage girl was that he was using up the phone line and it was making horrible sounds in the phone line, and I was not humored. So I marched into his room one day and I was like, what are you doing? Um, and he was like, I'm talking to people. And I'm like, you're making sounds like through the, no, what is this? And he was like, no, it's cool. And so he showed me a world that at the time was Usenet, which is one of the early online uh, fora. Um, and I was like, huh. And so all of a sudden I got online and I started actually interacting with all of these you know, gasp strangers on the internet. Um, and my brother and I engaged in a whole set of practices where the moment my mother would go to bed, we would get online. Um, and I spent my teenage years talking to people from all around the world. Who you didn't know. Who right? I didn't know. And it was not a big deal at the same, was in the same way back then. But for me, there were, there were so many transformative conversations. And probably the two that I you know, sort of think back to all, uh, frequently. Uh, one, at the time I was intending to go into the military. So I was a working class kid in Pennsylvania. Um, it was the pathway out and it was understood as such. But this was also sort of a really interesting moment because every queer person I knew was in the military which is also where the whole thing, the logic was a little strange. Um, but so this was, seemed like an obvious path because it was where a lot of my peers were going. Um, and so I spent all these, um, these time talking to 
young kids that were in the military um, who were stationed in Iraq um, during the first Gulf War, really trying to learn what it was like um, and what they were experiencing. And as a result, getting a really interesting crash course on geopolitics in a way that was not at all what I was reading in my hometown newspaper. So that was sort of one really transformative conversation um, thread. And the other was with um, uh, a transgender woman who allowed me to ask all sorts of inappropriate questions. I am kind of embarrassed to think about the kinds of questions I might have asked her, but where it allowed me to really think about gender and sexuality. And in no case was I really interested in meeting any of these people. They were just helping me understand a world that was much greater. And I very much thought of it as pen pals, right? Like this was just great. These were these people um, who were so different than what I grew up in, uh, grew up with. You were a teenage anthropologist. Yeah. That's what I'm just realizing. <laughs> so, so you go to college, and one day someone identifies you as someone who is going to dissect the American teen. How does yeah. that happen? Like, how do you get identified as the person who's going to go out and find teenagers under the bleachers? Um, I'm not sure it quite went that fast. Um, my, I went to college, um, and. My first day of my freshman year, I was assigned to a computer scientist, um, a guy by the name of Andy Van Dam, as my advisor. And I marched into his office, and I knew nothing about elite colleges. Like, like I said, a working class kid. So he was like, who the heck are you, and what are you doing in my office? And I was like, you're my advisor. He's like, so? And I was like, I want advice. Um, and so he was just like, uh, OK, and he put me to work. And um, the funny thing is, is that uh, this turned into one of the most powerful mentor relationships I ended up having. Um, and my relationship with him, as I, as I got involved in computer science, because I originally was a computer scientist, I originally built these systems, um, I would just constantly argue with him. And my first big argument with him um, was actually over a thing called the cave, which was an immersive 3D virtual reality system that I, he built and he was so proud of. And I walked into the system and put, donned the 3D goggles and proceeded to throw up. And he was like, what is wrong with you? And I'm like, this thing is sexist. And he was like, what are you talking about? Um, and uh, I proceed to do this crazy research project where I end up in the Netherlands working with people um, who are um, transitioning from male to female and female to male as their hormones shift and looking at depth cue visual prioritization um, being dependent on levels of sex hormones and how this affects virtual reality. And he decides I'm absolutely crazy, um, but that I'm kind of adorable. And um, <laughs> it was very funny because in some ways the, the reason I bring this story up is that um, I started grad school take one and I proceeded to drop out. Um, in a sort of fit of rage that was sort of tangential to this. And he tracked me down, and he told me that I would go back to grad school, and I said I would do no such thing. And we got into a fight, and uh, he sent me off to meet who would become my advisor, a man by the name of Peter Lyman. Um, and he basically said, you two, you'll get along. And my favorite was that this, this mentor of mine, he wrote a letter a recommendation for me that said, she was mine for four years, it's your turn, um, <laughs> which I really loved. Um, and this, this new mentor, Peter Lyman, um, he was in conversations uh, with the MacArthur Foundation at the time, and he said, so, we're getting some funding to work with teenagers. Any interest? And I was like, sure, I'm curious how much it changed. And really, this was the funny thing, is I began this project um, imagining that the internet would be so transformative for so many people now that it had become mainstream. And I wanted to understand what those transformations would look like. What would happen for all of these other teenagers who grew up online? Um, like, wouldn't they have these amazing, explorative, awesome opportunities? And I guess I was in for a bit of a shock when I actually got into the field. So you start the book in a way that I love with a kid who says, 
you know, you look like a cool adult. My mom thinks everything that happens online is bad. Can you tell her it's not bad? Um, what, what, are the ki- what, what, what is that dynamic like between the kids and the moms where they, you know, moms are afraid or the parents are afraid and the kids are just, you know, living their lives? You know, one of the hardest questions I kept getting from teenagers over and over again in my field work is that they would, they would look at me like, what did I do so wrong? Why do my parents not trust me? And I would ask them, like, what are you talking about? And they would just sit there and talk about all the restrictions and the regulations and the things they couldn't do and the rules. And they're like, but I didn't do anything wrong. And I kept untangling this. And I found that the issue of trust came up over and over again for a lot of young people, especially privileged young people, whose parents had been told that the way to parent is to create a whole set of structures, a whole set of rules, the do's and the don'ts, and the, you know, don't explore. And young people were just like, I'm just trying to hang out. I'm not really getting into trouble. Why does my mom think everything I do must be dangerous? Um, and I felt really bad for a lot of these young people because they didn't have the language necessarily to talk to their parents. They saw, you know, just as my mother thought that anything involving the computer was associated with educational, even as my brother and I were doing things that were not so educational, um, this cohort um, had, had grown up in an environment where um, their parents associated any use of the Internet with it must be dangerous. You must be getting into trouble. Um, and that was what it was really, it was just challenging to see this because so many of the young people I met they were doing fine. And I think this was the, the strange shift was that I grew up talking to strangers. This cohort was not. They were not talking to strangers. So let's get into that. Let's get into the myths that, that, yeah. that, that govern the way parents fear the Internet and then the actual reality of how the teenagers are using the Internet. So the first is sexual predators, that yeah. there are sexual predators lurking online and you are going to end up in a chat room with someone who you're going to meet in Aspen Park who's going to strangle you. Yeah. So. No, and I, you know, this... It was really around 2004 where that that started um, uh, becoming highly visible, and it was used particularly and targeted at uh, MySpace. Interestingly, it had existed about seven years before that um, in in context of IM, but really MySpace had brought it all back to the fore in an environment where um, young people were using it en masse, using these social technologies en masse. Um, And the idea, I mean, Time Magazine had this beautiful cover at one point of like, you know, um, you know, a hand reaching out from the screen and just grabbing a child. And we had, um, you know, these TV shows that, you know, To Catch a Predator was probably the most famous in the U.S. was a Dateline show, um, which created this idea that children were sort of these vulnerable individuals online and that they they would have casual conversations. And if they were if they were um, not careful, somebody would coax them into meeting them and terrible things would occur. So I was really confused by this because it was not at all what I was seeing on the ground. And so I started trying to untangle this. Now, the best research sort of at a, at a really large statistical level is done by the University of New Hampshire has a Crimes Against Children Research Center. So I sat down and spent a lot of time with them, um, particularly a scholar by the name of David Finkelhor. And there's two really relevant studies that are really important to this. Um, the first was that um, uh, was trying to understand are young people solicited sexually online? And indeed, if you look at um, Ad Council or a lot of their reports, you will hear numbers like one in five or one in seven young people are sexually solicited online. And this comes from the Crimes Against Children Research Report. But the thing about it is, is that people don't understand what that number means. They found that this many young people were sexually solicited almost all by their own peers, right? And that was one thing that always gets missed in that conversation. Of those who are solicited by adults, most of it is 18 to 24. Okay, so let's dive into it. Who are these kids? What's actually going on? When we look at the solicitations that are deeply problematic, we find that these are young people who are, um, you know, 
at risk in general. Um, home situations that are unstable, often abuse situations, um, dynamics around drug and alcohol issues, mental health issues, sexuality issues, the whole host of things that are going on. Okay, okay well, what's interesting? Why are they getting targeted? But then they followed up and they actually looked at um, uh, the, the small number of cases for which sexual victimization has occurred involving the internet and they dove into it and said, what's actually happening here? So there's a couple of things to know. It's almost always in the site that was last popular, not the current popular site. So there's a question of why is it that young people are actually hanging out in the place that is no longer cool, which is a really interesting question in and of itself. Um, it's in those kinds of environments. They usually, it is usually teenagers who portray themselves to be older Right? usually over the age of 18, they are often the initiator of the sexual conversations. Um, they are engaging in sexual dialogues with people they know are older. They meet up with them knowing it's about sex and they do so repeatedly believing that they are in love. It fits a very classic ma ma uh, map of statutory rape. And it is illegal for a reason, it is deeply problematic. But again, when we dive into these kids, we find that they're often really in abusive situations where they're looking for validation and love in all the wrong places, right? And so we should be, you know, Bells should be ringing. We should be figuring out how to help these young people. For the majority of young people, they're not even engaging this. Someone says something sketchy to them, they just sort of don't respond. Like They're just like, that's just weird. Like Who are you? You might as well be a bot for all I care because I don't get it. Yeah. By the way, they can't tell the difference between the bots and the sketchy people. They just avoid all of them, um, which is also intriguing in itself. But those who are engaging in the risky behaviors, part of it is like, how do we start identifying and reaching out to those young people? Because they are really, truly at risk. And I did start to see some of those young people who are at risk. And these are not the kids whose parents are really engaged, right? These are not the kids whose, whose families are engaged. And this is where, you know, my frustration about this case is that it not only obfuscates the story, it also, the narrative is like, you as a parent have to be vigilant, looking out for your child to make sure that they're not being harmed by a stranger. And that's actually not the take-home message of what we start to see. It's like, you as a parent who are really concerned and in this room engaging in this conversation, you need to make sure your entire community is okay. Yeah, it's like we as a community yeah. have to identify the, the kids who are in danger We're and help them, risk. not, yeah. I mean, this is like your kids' friends are more likely to be at risk than your kids. It's like, so how do you actually look out for us as a community? The other thing that kills me in all of this is that we think that we can educate by, by telling you don't talk to strangers, don't talk to adults. We actually need to start having a serious conversation about sexual victimization between peers. And we don't have that conversation at all, right? And most of these kids who are going to be sexually victimized are going to be sexually victimized by their peers. And in a world of abstinence-only education, we can't even get there close. Um, and that's what's heartbreaking to me, is that, that we are really missing a conversation about what real peer-to-peer -peer sexual victimization is, narrating it totally as dangerous strangers. Okay, the second myth. Ah, yeah. Teens share everything about themselves. They don't believe in privacy. This is a generation that's narcissistic. They say everything about themselves. I do this. I woke up. I had breakfast. That. <laughs> um, so when I started try driving into this, I was really sort of intrigued by it. And I came at it from a technical point of view of privacy. In a technical world of privacy, the idea is that privacy is about controlling information. And by that standard, young people seem to overshare, right? They put up so much. They talk about their breakfast. When you ask young people what, you know, about their breakfast, they're like, who cares? All it's saying is I'm here and I'm awake. And right. it's like a way of signaling to my friends I'm online, it's fun. And if they're not interested in it, they don't read it and they move on. And so then I started diving into them about where privacy matters. Now, if you're a parent of a kid, you know there are times where your kids are not telling you things, right? And you, you want to know what's happening and why are they telling the internet but they're not telling you. 
Um, and indeed, I started diving into what young people were doing and why they were doing it. And what I found was that what young people are doing with privacy, which, by the way, is actually starts to think about what all people do with privacy, is rather than thinking about it about control of the information, it's about control of a social situation. It's control of how things are getting interpreted. Who's making meaning? How do we understand it? So there's a variety of different ways in which young people start to do this. And I started diving into the tactics. And I give a whole host of different tactics in the book. But let me give you um, sort of the most dominant, which I refer to as social steganography. Steganography is the notion of, in cryptography, of hiding in plain sight. And so I'll tell it through the story of Carmen. Carmen is a young woman I meet in Massachusetts. Um, and she's of Argentinian descent. She can rely on the fact that her parents have no um, understanding of British cultural references, which is going to be really important to the story. Um, and she loves the fact that at Facebook, which at the time was the most popular system, um, she could rely on the fact that her extended family was all on Facebook. She loved that. She loved um, you know, talking with her Argentinian family, almost always in Spanish. When she was speaking in English, it was more targeted to his friends. But it was always a challenge of how to balance these two different worlds. Well, one day, um, she and her boyfriend break up. And you know, she's trying to figure out how to let her friends know that she's having a lousy day. right? She wants the love and the validation and the support and being told it'll be OK. And so she wants to let everybody know what's happening. Now, she's a teenager trying to express her emotions, which means she's looking for the perfect song lyric, right? which will be a way of letting everybody know what's going on. But she knows that if she pulls like a, you know, a sappy emo song lyric, that it's bound to trigger her mom into thinking she's suicidal. It's happened before. It's a problem. Right? So she's trying to figure out something that she knows her friends will get, but her mom will be completely clueless about. So she posts songs, uh, a song lyric from Always Look on the Bright Side of Life. Now, for those who do not know Monty Python, this is a song sung when the key character is being crucified. There is nothing happy about this scene in the life of Brian. Right? There's just nothing positive. But the song lyrics look so great, like Always Look on the Bright Side of Life. So she puts this up without making any references to Monty Python, just puts up Always Look on the Bright Side of Life. Um, her mother immediately comments, it looks like you're having a great day. Right? <laughs> her friends, totally knowing the reference, immediately text her and start you know, um, making sure she's doing OK. Right? And this is a beautiful way in which she's succeeded in achieving privacy in really significant ways. Now, this, is, this I would say, is sort of so the So meaning what? That the, that the thing that they're presenting is kind of a public presentation, and they understand it to be a public presentation. And then there's another world, which is peer-to-peer, -peer, which is a different form of public presentation. And then there's a third layer, which is truly private. Well, there's these privacy and private is not necessarily about um, you know, constrained space, because young people, are their spaces are so constrained. They have to go from this point of like at home by themselves to many, many people. And trying to find that balance is really difficult, because one-on-one -on -one is great for certain kinds of emotional support, but it's not the same as when you're hanging out with your broader friends and you're trying to get support and validation. And that's one of the reasons why you see young people shifting to not trying to control access to content, but trying to control access to meaning. Mm -hmm. Because they know that even if they set up all those privacy settings, all it t does is mom looking over the shoulder and all of that disappears. Right. Right? Right. So it's about trying to find a way, because what they're concerned about is the people who feel as though they have the right to look, namely y'all. Right? And so the thing is, is that that's what they're dealing with. Now, for young people who are really dealing with a whole different cast of um, power structures, you see it in, in a much more salient way. You know, when I um, think about it this way, for foster kids, when, you know, the, um, uh, when you, you know, you're under state control, that means that the, you know, the state is your guardian. They feel as though they have the right to look at everything. And so I have all these kids to talk to me about what it means to go into their caseworker and have everything they've ever posted dissected, everything their friends ever posted dissected. They, they assume such massive surveillance because they have no choice, right? Because guess what? Their guardianship is the state. Can
Can you tell the story about the gang guy who applied to college? Yeah. I think that's relevant to this audience. It's yeah. a, such an interesting story on this topic. So this was in the earliest days of MySpace, um, which was really important because this was when college admissions officers had, had decided to get really smart about the Internet um, in this really hysterical way. And they decided they were going to search everybody, right? They were going to search up people and make certain that they're, they're you know, who they say they are. And so they called me up with a question because um, they had received a beautiful admissions essay by a young man living in South Central in Los Angeles about wanting to leave behind the gang-ridden communities he'd grown up with. And they were so enamored with his, um, with his essay. Um, so then when they looked him up at MySpace, they were aghast because his MySpace was filled with gang insignia, making it very clear that he was gang-affiliated. And so they called me up with this question. Why would he lie to us when we can tell the truth online? Now, the thing about it is, if you spent time you know, in an environment like South Central, you know that gang affiliation is not necessarily a choice. Your family members are affiliated. Your best friends are affiliated. It's a survival mechanism, right? And for a lot of these kids that I meet in, in environments like that, they are affiliated because they have to be. And so for him, he's trying to balance these two different audiences. And the college admissions officer, not understanding these contexts at all, reads this as deception. Right? And I think this is where there's an interesting challenge in terms of how young people are portraying what they are online because they're trying to negotiate these different cultural contexts. And the further away those contexts are, the harder it is to figure out how to manage it, the more dangerous those collapses can be. And I think it becomes really tricky because we often assume it's like, oh, well, these kids, they should just figure out how to put things up more appropriately. And I would say, we adults need to figure out how to be more thoughtful when we interpret what we think we see. Because a lot of times, we think we understand what's going on, and we don't have the first foggiest clue, because we're not located in those communities. Or it's only one piece of the puzzle. It's like, that's the way that they belong to the online social community. That's not who they are. That's just how they present in the school community, or whatever, on their Twitter feed, or on their Instagram, or whatever. That's who they yeah. want to be in the kind of public that is their... Well, that's what the, you know, and that's space, what the social pressures look like, right? right? I mean, status games, I mean, there's, there's this great um, uh, research by uh, Murray Milner, Jr., and he talks about the more that we take away from young people, the one thing they have control over is status. And the result of which is that they play all these games to achieve status. And we complain about popularity and we complain about what's cool. But that is the one thing that we allow them to have freedom over. And that's exactly why you see these disconnects because part of the status games is to be able to push against um, the local adult ideas of what are, what's considered to be valid or, or recognizable and to really resist that. And we create these dynamics that we've created ourselves by putting so much pressure on young people. So another myth, one of my favorites. We walk into a room, we see our kid on the computer, and we think, why would she rather hang out virtually than actually? Why does she prefer to hang out with her you know, friends on Instagram than actually go see them? Right. This is when I sort of I dove into um, uh, kind of obsessively because I started um, uh, hearing this language from young people. Parents would indeed say this. It's like, why are they spending so much time online? And kids kept saying to me, I would so much rather get together with my friends in person, but, and then they would give a litany of reasons why. Um, and they would say, you know, if I don't have any other options, the internet is perfectly good enough. And so I started diving into it, and I realized that a lot has changed in American society in the last 30 years that we don't account for. Um, so it starts really with the rise of 24-7 news in the late 70s, um, where we convinced ourselves that terrible things were happening to kids somewhere in the country, and therefore were happening to our kids in this community itself. And we created this anxiety, and parents were really, really anxious. Um, 
And then we started responding. And our responses started in the 80s where we implemented curfew laws, trespassing laws, loitering laws, all of these ideas of young people not having physical mobility. We then started um, restricting them socially from all sorts of places, right? The, the park was a dangerous place. Um, that, got, that emerged in the 80s. Um, so was the mall that emerged by the 90s. Um, so we had all of these different concerns about young people hanging out in person. We also minimized their ability to have unstructured time um, by, um, in response to latchkey kid culture, right? The idea of, uh, for those who aren't familiar with latchkey kid culture, in the 1980s, it was the notion that after school, your kid would go home on the school bus um, where they would go and have a healthy snack, lucky charms, where they would proceed, where they would proceed to do their homework, watch TV, right? And they, you know, they would wait diligently until you came home, not getting in any trouble. What got narrated is this was a terrible thing for kids to, you know, have this much freedom. So we started structuring kids' lives, putting them in activities from morning to night, particularly in upper, um, uh, middle and upper class um, society. Um, and we did it as a way to you know, prevent them from um, uh, having risk, but we eliminated any unstructured time that they faced. We reinforced it with our relationship to school buses. So it used to be that a kid would go um, stand by um, the school bus stop where they would linger for 15, 20 minutes. They would get on the bus. They would misbehave the entire way to school. They would get to school early. They would hang out by their lockers, again, misbehaving. Um, they would get through the school and then repeat the whole thing and return, right? Well, because of concerns about school buses, concerns about bullying, all of these other things that emerge, we started dropping kids off. And the majority of young people are now dropped off at school, um, especially in middle-upper-class environments, in the ways that once weren't at all. It really has limited their ability to just hang out with their friends. And so when you look at young people's lives, they go from morning to night in a really structured environment. And by the time they get past dinner um, and they're, um, you know, they're finally done with their homework and they're done with their activities, all they want to do is just mess around with their friends. Right? And it used to be that we would sneak out. Right? That was sort of the solution. Today's young people, by and large, do not sneak out. Um, it's because the thing is, it's a collective action problem. Even if you can get out, it's really hard to get all of your friends to get out. And the internet's a lot easier. Right? So you can all jump online, and you're all hanging out there, and you can do it um, asynchronously, so that even if your friend is still stuck at dinner, you can start having conversations, and he can pile on later. Right? And so we see this environment. And by the way, it's not just about, like, oh my gosh, they're spending all this time. They're staying up late into late hours. Now, there's a couple, there's, it's not just that this is their only time to hang out, which it really is in a lot of communities. It's also that, biologically, that's actually where they start to really be engaged emotionally. Right? So the thing is, is that that's where it all starts to trigger, and they all start to pay attention. So they're really engaged. They're emotional. They're really engaging with their friends in, in intimacy kinds of ways. You know, their best friends are having deep, intensive conversations. They're loving it. Um, and guess what? They don't want to wake up in the morning. Um, but the thing about it is about the morning, which people also don't realize, is that teenagers never were able to wake up in the morning, right? And it's not any better now. And they were always staying up really late because part of it is, is that that's actually much more of a natural rhythm. And we have forced them into being the ones that get up earlier than middle school and elementary school kids in ways that make no sense. And so, yeah, we've got a sleep-deprived you know, group who desperately want a chance to hang out with their friends. And the result is that social technologies become the relief valve rather than the addiction. So when does it go wrong? I mean, you, you, you know, there, there are things, so there are things that technology enables because we've created this society. It's the only way for them to hang out. But there are also things that it's amplified in not great ways. Absolutely. Um, so, so, you know, a scenario in which, you, so, so how does it go wrong? Is it that, you know, drama gets amplified because mm -hmm. it can spread so quickly? Sort of what, what is it that the technology allows to go south? Right. I mean, Part of it is, is that this cohort of young people are very stressed. Um, their parents are stressed. They're stressed in the home. They're stressed out and maxed out in all sorts of ways. They are not sleeping very much. 
Um, and as a result, you have a whole slew of different kinds of stupidity um, you know, that in some ways are classic teenage dumb getting magnified. Um, bullying is a really tricky one because it's, this is another one that is really misunderstood um, and I dive into it in the book. Um, as adults, we have a bad tendency to use the term bullying to refer to every form of meanness and cruelty from lightweight teasing and taunting to serious forms of criminal harassment. And if you look at news coverage of bullying, it tends to run the whole gamut, which is hugely problematic. Young people don't use the term bullying for that wide range. For once, they actually use it in the way researchers do, which, by the way, never happens. Um, <laughs> They don't refer to exactly the way do we do. We, as researchers, we say it's psychological, physical, or social aggression repeated over time by people of differential physical or social power. Um, teenagers talk about it as the mean kid picking, or the big kid picking on the little kid, the cool kid picking on the geek. It's that same type of dynamic. Um, what's interesting is, is that we assumed that the internet would be a big um, increaser of uh, bullying. It's not. Um, this is often surprising people. If you do studies over 30 years that stabilize definition, you see that the internet has not actually um, resulted in any rise in bullying, which is really strange. Um, when you survey young people now, you find that they continuously report that bullying is far worse with greater emotional duress and more serious um, consequences at school. And so then what's going on here, right? So you mean parents, when it happens real, it's, it's more... When, it ha when bullying happens, they report that it's far worse at school than anything they experience online. Um, so then you dive in and you're like, well, what's going on here, right? Parents often talk about how it extends it. It must be so much worse because of extension. But young people are actually saying, actually, it's the social support that they get afterwards that makes the Internet so much more of a relief because even if they get teasing and taunting and meanness and cruelty and drama and all this other sort of stuff going on, they can rely on friends being there, right? Now, there are some exceptions, and you have to acknowledge that whenever you're looking at statistics, there are exceptions. Um, bullying is a serious problem. We're still talking 30%, right? So there's different issues um, at play here. But the thing is, is that bullying makes things so much more visible because of the Internet, right? Rather, the internet makes things so much more visible. And it's that visibility that I think we as adults don't recognize. We get to see things that are happening in kids' lives, and so we blame the technology, right? Without actually looking at the fact that that visibility is an opportunity for us to understand what's going on, to understand how to deal with these things, to try to figure out how to navigate it. But it also requires us to walk away, or to always question our, our assumptions. So I'll give it in a concrete in the, in the bullying component. Um, many of you might have heard of sites like Formspring or Ask.fm. These are question and answer services that are usually linked to, um, uh, to Facebook, even though they're not actually the same company. Um, these question and answer services work because you can anonymously ask somebody a question, um, and they will respond. Now, the thing about these question and answer services is that anonymous questions are only uh, answered, or sorry, only made visible when they are answered. So the thing that was really strange is news reports started um, getting you know, huge about these sites, being like, these are terrible. It's all these sites that are to blame. This is where we're allowing anonymity to you know, promote certain kinds of cruelty. And the thing that I was sort of questioning when I started to see this is, why would teenagers respond to really cruel questions? That makes no sense. If they don't like the cruel questions, why are they responding? Because it's only the responses that make it visible. So I called up the companies. I'm like, can you help me figure this out? We need to look into it. So they um, pulled um, the most complained about situations um, for me, and they looked at a lot of those cases individually. And they found something startling, which was that the same IP address that was asking the question anonymously was answering it in under 20 minutes. In other words, by and large, these were teenagers asking themselves cruel, anonymous questions to respond to them. All right, so what goes on, right? So then we started diving into it. I went into it qualitatively. Elizabeth Englander, another um, researcher, she went into it more empirically. 
um, uh, statistically, and we sort of went back and forth trying to figure out what was happening. And what we found was that a lot of young people were doing this because if they responded to cruel questions online, they looked tough, which gave them really high status, and they got a lot of love and validation and support. Right? In environments where their parents were flipping out, but they were getting love and support from their friends by responding to cruel questions of bullying. And that's a really heartbreaking thing. Right? Because all the parents were basically screaming, we need to get rid of these sites, they need to go away, they need to be stopped. But when you dive into it, you realize that in many of these environments, not only were the kids looking for attention from their peers, they were looking for their parents to pay attention to them. Right? And that's when you start to actually start to question what we're doing. And that's one of the reasons why I look at this is like everything of teenagerness, all of its good, bad, and ugly, it's made visible online. So rather than reacting to the online and thinking the online is the thing that makes it so much worse, use the online to make sense of what's going on, not just with your own kids' life, but with your community's lives. Make, make sure you're actually paying attention. And it's really hard because I think that a lot of Parents feel like they're doing good when they create monitors or surveillance systems, like that's how they're supposed to be paying attention, rather than to start having conversations with young people. And that's what I'm finding young people need more than anything else. Yeah, you were very convincing on that point um, because the kids just, they, they're, it's so easy for them to end run. Like you create a lot of rules, they just create a different name. I mean, how many, I'm now reporting a story and how many kids sort of had an Instagram page which their parents made them shut down, how easy it is to create another Instagram oh, yeah. page under a different name and just tell all your friends about it. It's just so, you don't have to be like an FBI investigator to networks. figure out how to end run your parents. There used to be so many mirror yeah. networks. Facebook made mirror networks hard, um, but they were really popular with uh, MySpace, which was that you had the, the network with your real name um, that your parents had looked up, that college admissions yes. officers looked up, and you kept posting things so you made it look real like you were engaged on it, but you had the same exact social graph of everybody with their fake handles as well, um, engaging in the same conversation. And just in case you guys think you can figure out what the fake handles are, they're like queen seven seven five two underscore Mexico. So you can't figure them out. Right, and they become more and more sophisticated at playing games with it because the other thing is they're using encoding all over the place. They're using references, and most of it isn't that problematic. Right? I mean, this is, this is it's the, a game. It's like I'm dodging you just because I need some privacy, not necessarily because right. I need to do something bad, but just because... It's like the misunderstanding you know. of Snapchat. People think that if you're going to send a Snapchat imi uh, image, it must be something dirty. It's like, actually, no. It's just like, why do you want everything to cause drama? Why do you want it to have to be explained? It's better for it to be more ephemeral. It just is easier to navigate. So the, the final big, big myth I want to challenge before we open up is Internet is the great equalizer. The idea that Internet was going to be democratic and everyone was going to have equal access and it was going to change our societal dynamics yeah. in some fundamental way. Yeah. So, I, you know, it all started for me when um, uh, I was really diving into MySpace. And at the time, I was actually doing social network analysis. And I was spending time in a school in Los Angeles that was very proudly talking about how diverse it was. All of its classes were integrated, that word being problematic in and of itself. Um, and they were talking about how this was, it was all wonderful, kumbaya, they had no race relationship issues, in a community where we know that there was a lot of gang warfare. And so then I went and looked at MySpace. And sure enough, I graphed um, all the kids in that school, and they were totally segregated, right? They were totally separated, primarily um, uh, black and Latino dynamics, right? Separated and segregated. And I was like, hmm. So we're seeing all the reinforcement. We're seeing the way in which race in a post-racial society um, gets reinforced. And I was like, that's deeply disturbing. And this was all sort of fascinating to watch, and I was analyzing, and I was trying to make sense of it. Um, and then I hit the 2006 to 2007 school year, right, where part of it is, is that in a market-driven logic, people kept talking about how people had choice between MySpace and Facebook, 
But I was watching that choice not play out in the way that people were necessarily talking about it. Um, and then I was sitting with a young woman in Massachusetts, um, and she was very awkwardly sitting there just being like, and finally she looks at me and she goes, you know, I don't mean to be racist or whatnot, but MySpace is kind of ghetto. And I was like, huh. And so I asked her to dive into that statement. And we went into it, and then I started looking across all of this different field work that I was seeing. And what I was finding was that young people were replicating a narrative that was created by the media, um, where um, MySpace was seen as dangerous, risky, troubling, urban, right? A whole set of coded language for sites that were um, uh, you know, shaped by class and race. Um, Facebook, on the other hand, had st similar connoted words, right? It was clean, it was quiet, it was, it was safe. It had all of these other signals that were going on. And needless to say, the media was going after MySpace, right? It was, this was a period in which the um, US Attorneys General had a lawsuit going after, and it was, it was really being the target. Um, interestingly, I was seeing it playing out in other environments, too. Um, college admissions officers were recruiting on Facebook, but not on MySpace. Um, military was allowing um, officers to get access to Facebook, but not allowing soldiers to get access to MySpace. We had all of these class divisions playing out. So I did this really funny thing um, where I decided uh, to write an essay awkwardly about what I was observing, just being like, huh, I'll just put this on the internet and see if I can get some responses to it. And I did this at night, um, and I went to bed which was not the best way of handling this, because I woke up the next morning and the BBC had decided to cover it as a formal report from Berkeley, uh, which is not a good way to deal with it, and I had received over 10,000 messages over the night, um, including messages from the lawyers at both Facebook and MySpace um, in, in a threatening manner that was saying that um, uh, what I was uh, saying was uh, harmful to their brands. Um, which I thought was intriguing. I got both of them. That was, that was great. Um, but the thing is, is that teenagers came back en masse and said, no, you're right. And I actually, you need to understand it in more detail. And they laid out for me the way in which class and race politics were happening within each of their schools and how those tensions were emerging. And the way in which they were reproducing all of the, the divisions that we have in American society that we think are not part of our society because we live in a post-racial environment. Um, and it wasn't just a matter of this tension. And by the way, that tension exists over and over again. Right now, the tension between Vine and Instagram, for example. Right? People don't realize this, but those sites are actually in competition in a hardcore way. And of course, the media is entirely covering Instagram as the good child um, and not realizing the way in which they're, they're negatively portraying Vine. Um, but the thing is, so this uh, over and over again. But it's not just this. It's also the way in which we start to see what happens when um, communities uh, collapse where they don't necessarily have a way of talking past race and class lines. So this occurred when um, Twitter decided to implement something called trending topics. Um, and trending topics was the idea of being able to see all across Twitter about what were the really interesting topics being discussed. Now, you may have heard that um, Twitter is often referred to as black Twitter. Um, in ways that are also really racially um, intoned. Um, and part of it is, is that when you look at um, uh, young um, African Americans who are online, they are overrepresented on Twitter compared to other, other sites. Um, but the night of the Black Entertainment Television Awards occurred shortly after the um, uh, release of the trending topics. And so all of the trending topics that night were icons of the black community. Right? Amazingly well-known um, artists who are extraordinarily um, wonderful. Um, and highly respected, right? And in this way where what was responding was a whole slew of primarily white-identified individuals talking about how, um, guess what, you know, t Twitter is now, you know, it's now gone to the dark side, um, and, like, uh, that was probably the politest thing you saw, right? Extraordinarily racist epitaphs. Um, and when you look into these communities, and I would look into them, you know, physically as well, 
they are reproducing what is all around them. And this is one of the, again, that visibility challenge. We pretend, especially in more privileged environments, that we live in an environment where race and class don't matter. They are made extraordinarily visible online if we choose to look and if we have to then start to acknowledge the fact that we have not addressed structural inequality. It becomes visible online, not just in a, in a digital divide sense, but in every way in which young people are experiencing the online world. So a last thing for you, you had no children when you started doing this research, <laughs> now you do. What, what's been the difference for you? How do you, does it make you think about the teenagers or your research differently? No, I mean, you know, the one thing about doing research is that I am really confident of my data. I'm really confident about the analysis that um, I did, that my collaborators did, that we did it sort of en masse. The thing that it's made me really cognizant of is that my son is extraordinarily privileged, right? He's going to grow up in an environment where his opportunities are really unprecedented, and I need to acknowledge that, and I need to figure out how to navigate privilege with him. Um, it's also meant, made me realize as a parent how important it is to be calm, uh, because one of the things is that um, parental anxiety is actually one of the things that I see having huge stress factors for a lot of these kids, um, and so it's made me really sort of step back and think about how, what it means to be present. Um, the other thing that sort of I came to um, in all of it was realizing how important the process of asking questions are. So, you know, one of the dangerous things that I watched um, a lot of parents come to kids' use of technology is that they would come with very judgmental questions. Why are you doing it that way? Um, and kids would just be like, oh, give me space, right? Like, what are you doing? And for a lot of teens, it was like, you know, they wanted their parents to be curious, not to be judgmental. And it made me realize that, like, that is not something that starts at the teenage years. That is something that starts really, really young. And I went back to this. There's an amazing um, anthropological text by a scholar named Jean Briggs. Um, and she studied Inuit culture. Um, and she wrote a book called Inuit Morality Play. Um, and it's so delightfully non-American um, that it's just amazing to think about it. Because the way that young Inuit kids learn morality is by um, parents asking them questions um, and forcing them to think through things. And I'll, I'll showcase it in, this, in a case that she gives that sort of highlights the difference between American norms and um, Inuit culture norms, which is that imagine that you know, your, your son comes up to you and is like, you know, mommy, 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 I hate Bobby, he's mean, right? And an American approach would be like, it's okay, I love you, right? And this other sort of supportive language. Um, the Inuit cultural response would be like, well, why don't you kill him? Right? Now, we can't imagine this being asked on a playground, right? Um, but the result of which is that the, the son, assuming he's not a sociopath, and most are not, right, would look and be like, well, mommy, I don't hate him that much. Well, how much do you hate him? Well, I just don't like what he did, so what are you going to do about it, right? And it becomes this process of asking young people to work out what their decision-making processes are. And the thing is, is that especially when it comes to technology, we know we're not experts, right? We know that our, our, our children are exploring landscapes that we don't necessarily know, but we have been taught that the only way to parent is to come in and tell them that we know how it should be, um, rather than using it as an opportunity to ask hard questions, to ask questions that force them to reflect. And I, you know, and, I, and I was thinking about it, and I was thinking about it with regard to my son, and I was thinking about it with regard to my own personal experiences, which is, I, I, and, and I, this one story sort of reminds me from, from when I was 18, um, I decided to shave my head, um, which is, um, I knew was going to be fully a way of pissing off my mother, right? I fully knew it. And I marched in, and sure enough, she got upset. She was so angry at me, right? And that was exactly the response I wanted, right? <laughs> um, she was not thrilled. Um, and um, then I saw my grandmother. And my grandmother, without any sort of, you know, uh, response, emotional response, just looks at me and goes, why did you 
you want to look like you were in the Holocaust? And walks off. <laughs> Nothing was more effective at forcing me to think about my own presentation, right? That perfect question in that perfect time to just make you step back and go, ooh, right? And so there's these moments of just saying, like, how do we start asking questions of our kids? How do we start thinking about it? And that's really what I came away of, like, trying to figure out how I do that well as a parent and how I deal with the fact that, you know, I'm not going to be a perfect parent. None of us are. And my responsibility is to do my best, um, as all of yours are. Okay, questions. Yes, back there. Hi. Hello. Um, I teach high school English, and so I'm very concerned with the communication skills of At young Stuyvesant, people. At Stuyvesant, my old high school. There you yes. go. And um, I, I had given an assignment in which I required students to interview someone, and almost all of them wanted to opt out and email them. And, and we started talking about why they were doing this, and it just turned out that, and, and with your example, the idea that, that bullying in, in person is much more hurtful. These are students who would rather ask out someone online than look at them face to face. And I was just wondering if you could speak to, are there any particular trends that we're seeing in young people and, and their ability or inability to communicate face to face? The ability to learn how to communicate requires experience and practice. The more that we have done to eliminate young people's opportunity to do this in person, the less experience and practice they have. The result of which is that they are learning these skills in a mediated way, right? 100% full stop. They are learning how to navigate their friends. They're learning how to navigate interpersonal conflict in a textual and visual medium. Um, and that is a blessing and a curse, right? They are actually getting to be very good at doing this, which will be advantageous because at this point, many corporate environments actually require you to navigate it through text. But it may create these, these situations of like, it's really awkward to figure out how to approach someone. The question is how to actually address this. This is not something that can actually be solved by having kids sit down in groups of four in practice sessions in a classroom to have a conversation, right? And that's the only way in which we have allowed them to actually have those face-to-face -face conversations. If we want to get back to young people having experience and practice, um, navigating interpersonal conflict, navigating communication skills verbally, we need to let them get back on their bikes and get home by dark. And we are not going to solve it until we do. Here, here for that. Way back there. So uh, my name's Eric. I live in Washington, D.C. And I'm really curious. You, you've been mostly speaking about the, your research vis-a-vis -vis just the individual students and the parent environment. And I'm really curious because a lot of the lessons you're describing, you talked a little bit about a school example. But it seems I work in education. And over and over we hear how the students are way ahead of the teachers and the administrators in terms of how to use technology, both for good and ill. And again, the, the administration decision is always shut it all down. So you know, even if there are learning opportunities on YouTube, but there's also threats and you know, you know, bad images that you're, you might see there. So there's always the restriction. And I wondered if you had any examples of schools that are doing this really well, actually, to help kids both be better digital natives and digital citizenship, because that's really what we have to teach them, I think. So um, first thing I'd say is uh, I'd actually have a whole chapter debunking the digital natives myth, because young people are actually terrible at actually using these tools um, in any way, because they're not actually being encouraged to learn how to do it. They don't know how to um, construct a search query. They don't even know how to get to the information they're looking for. They've been taught that um, Wikipedia is bad and Google is good, so they think that anything they get to the top of their Google search is a perfectly valid response because this is the kind of narrative we're creating. So there's a whole slew of issues to begin with about what they don't know um, because schools are not actually you know, being encouraged to create media literacy at all. But to your and so I'd, I'd say dive into that because I actually think this, it's hugely problematic for, an administ for administrators to assume that young people are sophisticated because it's one of the reasons why American kids are actually going further behind in all forms of anything involving technology than most of our um, counterparts in other countries. In terms of schools doing it well, 
Ironically, it's the schools where um, teachers are taking it on their own um, uh, in spite of the administration. Um, and it's usually almost always uh, low-income communities where the teachers are in it for making sure the kids are okay and the parents aren't hovering. Those are the places where I'm seeing amazing experiments occur. So I'll start with a story that was really early on. Um, again, in my field work, this was back in the era of MySpace. Uh, a teacher um, was be being befriended um, on MySpace, and he was like, ah, oh, this is going to be awkward. I'm not sure how to navigate this. But he decided that he would allow it. He would allow his students to befriend him. He would not friend any of them. He'd see what would happen. So one day, one of his students um, posts on his MySpace, they're like, yo, Mr. C, why are we learning this whole trigonometry thing? My mom doesn't know trig. My grandmother doesn't know trig. I see no point in this, right? And he sort of says, okay. And so he responds. He's like, well, the reason you're learning trig or Shakespeare or all these other things is I'm trying to help you learn how to think, how to, how to approach. And he starts this conversation about pedagogy, right? It's an amazing conversation. And all these other students start piling on and debating him and whatnot. And it fundamentally changed that classroom dynamic. Right, the way in which they could interact. And I say this because most school teachers are saying we should ban kids from talking to teachers. Um, and I think that this is not only problematic in terms of young people's safety, but I think it's actually problematic in terms of their well-being and learning how to navigate adult worlds. For a lot of young people, especially marginalized young people, teachers are the only people that are in their lives that they can turn to. Right? I love it if all kids had parents that they could turn to, but let's be truthful. Like, that is not the reality in this country. Um, and even for young people whose parents are really there for them, sometimes shit goes wrong. Right? Parents get divorced. You need somebody else to turn to. Teachers become extremely helpful. It used to be that kids would actually meet with um, teachers after school in that period before the school bus picked up. See school bus problem. But the challenge is, is that you don't actually have that. So what I've been really encouraging teachers to do, and some have done it primarily in private schools or in other um, low-income schools, um, is create a teacher account on whatever is popular. Sorry, create an account that is your teacher hat on whatever service is popular with your kids, right? Never friend your students, because that's creepy. But if they friend you, say yes. <laughs> Right? And if you're worried about it, if you're, wor if you're worried about visibility, give your password to your principal. Right? And a lot of teachers have started doing this. Like, I'm going to treat it as an open-door policy, but I'm going to be there for the kids in the spaces where they're able to reach out. I'll say this with one other thing, which is I'm on the board of an organization called Crisis Text Line. And it's where we actually see young people texting us in crisis, and we get tens of thousands of um, uh, crisis messages a week. And when you actually go through that data, you just see how few trusted adults kids have in their lives. And this is why I say it with regard to teachers. It starts by being present. It starts by actually being able to, be li to listen. And it really means fighting back against administrations that are fearful. The majority of teachers are not going out to harm children. That's not why they're in this profession. But we treat all teachers as, uh, as potential pedophiles. And it does a true disservice to young people. OK, you in the front. So I've, I've spent the last 37 years of my life living with teenagers. And I'm a teacher coach. I run a boarding school. And I thought maybe you just had 85. Yeah. yeah so <laughs> yes. Thankfully, no. Uh, so here's my question. Uh, we, we've, I had a, one of the young women that we sent to Dartmouth College say, uh, you have to have the speaker come talk to us because he, she has been here talking to us about pornography, the Internet, and its impact on the behavior of young men in college. And so we brought the speaker out, and it was really an eye-opener, scary, and I'm trying to figure out how much of that is statistically valid versus sort of impact of, you know, her experiences in Dartmouth mm -hmm. College. But basically she said that the impact of pornography, the Internet, has fundamentally shifted both in men and women, girls and boys, their understanding of how they behave sexually. And she had the most unbelievable set of wicked stories I've ever heard about this kind of fundamental shifts. So, myth or reality? It's complicated. Um, so, 
what's intriguing to me is when you start by looking in who's actually looking at pornography. Pornography is not an issue of exposure, which most people think it is. It's just a matter of like, oh, it will just be exposed to you because you're on the internet. It's actually a decision to actually go and look at things. Now the question is why are young people going to look at things and what are they looking for and how do they understand that and how do they have experience dealing with what they see and what they deal with. And what we find is that in most um, parts of this country in particular, because we cannot have a reasonable conversation about sex and sexuality, young people are looking at it to find senses of, of where the edges and the borders are about what's appropriate and how they navigate it. And so the thing is, is that the best mediator to a lot of this is actually starting to have a true, honest-to-God conversation about how bodies are portrayed, how they're, how they're constructed and photoshopped and all of this, and really getting into the critical conversations of what is the sexualized imagery that we have from the, you know, the, the advertisements we get in any, any you know, magazine, 17 magazine, kids magazines, all the way through to extreme pornography. Um, because we don't do that, what ends up happening is that a certain segment of the population goes and explores and gets normalized um, into their understanding of things that are entirely artificial. And that creates these huge challenges of what they understand and what they see as norms. It is not the mainstream. It is not shaping everybody. It is a particular segment of the population. And it has a lot to do with what you understand as sexuality and how you experience it and it gets normalized. Um, and that normalization has to happen within a societal construct. So it's not that the, the images are doing the cultural work. It's that they're the only exposure to the normalization of what sexuality should look like that certain young people are actually facing. And so, I mean, the intervention is really having a true conversation about pornography. But most parents that I know don't want to have that conversation. Um, back there in the plaid shirt. I'm sorry if you already addressed this, but the, the concept of things that disappear quickly and their impact on kids. I'm thinking about both on the anonymity side with the whispers and secrets of the world, and then on the, the obvious Snapchat, you know, there for 30 seconds and blows up. What's, what's that impact going to be on teens? Yeah. So it's not funny because, like, you know, for those who don't know Snapchat, the way that that service works is that you get an image um, at, or a video, and it has uh, basically a self-destruct element to it. it. You know, it has some encoded amount, let's just say seven seconds, <coughs> and then it disappears. And it was usually originally discussed in terms of privacy. Um, so it's like, oh, well, this is a way of making certain that images are, are more private because you can only see them for a period of time. But there was a really interesting shift I saw in practices, <coughs> which had to do with attention which is that when young people received, say, a snap that was going to be seven seconds, they knew they'd only have seven seconds to look at it. So they'd choose the seven seconds where they knew they could pay attention to it. And they'd stop, and they'd look at it, and they'd focus. The reason that this is intriguing is that in a world where streams of content have become normalized, right, your Twitter feed is like whoosh, whoosh, whoosh. Your Instagram feed is like whoosh, whoosh, whoosh. You don't pay attention to any of it, right? You're flipping through. You're flipping through. You're looking for the thing that stands out. You're looking for whatever algorithm has determined that this is the thing you should focus on. What's intriguing about Snapchat is you make this decision that you're going to devote seven seconds or whatever it is to really paying attention. That has shifted practice. That has shifted the understanding of how you deal with content, how you deal with thinking about your allocation of attention. Um, it's really, and that's where to me is a little bit different than the um, secret and whisper.io or yik yak type things because those are just these streams again and that's just like living in a world of like what are the sort of conversations, what's really salient amongst my peers. And again that becomes what's normalized. But something that is about ephemerality invites attention. And I think that that's, that's one of the things that no amount of technology is going to get rid of our ability to have a limited amount of time, right? There's just, that is one resource. We have not figured out how to do it. I mean, if you figured out how to stop time, please let me know. Uh, but most people have not figured out how to do this. So this is sort of this beautiful thing. 
And I love seeing it because that practice, to me, is going to be experimented with. I think the new technologies in general are going to be experimenting with affordances like this, the ways of changing how we relate, how we think about time. Well, that was awesome. Thank you, Dana. You're such a good talker, and thank you guys. That was Dana Boyd and Hannah Rosen, recorded live at the Aspen Ideas Festival on June 30th, 2014. The Aspen Ideas Festival is the nation's premier gathering place for leaders from around the globe and across disciplines to engage in deep, inquisitive discussion and tackle the ideas and issues that shape our lives and challenge our times. You can discover more at our website, aspenideas.org. Make sure to subscribe to this podcast, Aspen Ideas To Go, on iTunes or other popular podcasting services. And while you're there, please take a few moments to rate and review this podcast and share it with your friends and colleagues. You can also follow the festival on Twitter at Aspen Ideas and on Facebook. I'm Trisha Johnson, Editorial Director of Public Programs at the Aspen Institute. Thank you for listening. <laughs>